Welcome to Smart Software, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Ethan, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer at SmartLogic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile software applications since 2005. From the SmartLogic team today, we have myself, Justice, and the birthday boy, Eric Ostrich. How old are you today, Eric? Yesterday as of recording, but I am uh, in a new decade, I will say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, at least it's not a new century. (laughs) So Eric and I have been working on season two of Smart Software, and season two is centered around Elixir internals. So we've been talking about the inner workings of popular Elixir libraries and Today, we are joined by a contributor to a very interesting library. His name is Dave Lucia, and he's joining us from New York City. And I'm actually in his office right now in One Pen Plaza. He worked for Simple Bet. Dave Lucia, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Yeah, so hello, I'm Dave Lucia. It's really nice to, to be on the show. Thank you guys for having me. I am a contributor wrestler, although I don't want to uh, put so much emphasis on that because my contributions are very minor compared to those that started that package, which is really amazing, by the way. Did you want me to give a little background on myself? Yes. I want to hear a little bit about yourself because this is the first time we've done a guest interview in person. So I'm in New York City right now. Eric is remote still, but I'm sitting in the same room as Dave. We're in your office. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, but also the company that you work for. Yeah, wonderful. And actually, it should be mentioned that we almost had Eric with us, but uh, due to a flight mishap, we couldn't get him here in the flesh. So Non-Elixir related technical difficulties. Yes, (laughs) that's right. Yes. So the weather was not on our side, unfortunately. It's hard to program around that. Okay. So yeah, just to repeat, I'm Dave Lucia. Uh, I'm VP of Engineering here at SimpleBet. We're doing a lot of really interesting work in the sports betting space. The sports betting industry is quite old. It goes back, like some of the companies that are still active go back to 1863. There's a lot of job services that were written in 1863 as well that are still (laughs) active. Sorry to all of those who have heard that joke too many times. So what we're trying to do is build innovative, engaging user experiences for sports bettors. And when we went to go do that initially, when our CEO started out, he was looking for someone who can provide them the odds of, of the markets that he was looking to build. So... Markets like who's going to you know score next in the next five minutes of this game or for the NFL, will this drive result in a touchdown? Is Tom Brady going to throw an interception this drive? And so when he went to go you know find a provider to get the odds for the markets, like you know the probability of an interception being thrown is is X and the probability of a touchdown is y. There was no one who could do that for those types of in-game markets. And so what we realized is, we should be the provider of those odds. And what we're doing is we're building uh, an application that ingests real-time data and uses a bank of historical information and produces in real-time those odds using Elixir and Rust. And this is like the perfect use case for Elixir. Yeah, it's actually amazing. Elixir and the BeamVM and Erlang are so good at concurrency. And when you're dealing with sports, you're dealing with potentially... A dozen odd baseball games at once, plus whatever other sports are in season, you know, 
concurrently managing all of those sports is really important and it's really important to get it so that if one sport has an issue, one event has an issue, the other one doesn't go down. Got it. And before we jump into some of these like open source questions, talking about Rustler, maybe you just want to tell us a little bit about how you personally got started with Elixir. Absolutely. I started out my career at Bloomberg and I was doing C++ for a long time, which was fun, but a little bit hairy. And then I moved over to Bloomberg.com and was part of the 2014 Bloomberg.com relaunch, doing a lot of JavaScript. And my manager at the time, he really got me into Elixir. He was you know, formerly really big on Ruby, found Elixir some way through the Ruby ecosystem. And he got me really fascinated with it. I started building Slack bots and all of a sudden I wanted to build everything in Elixir and I was trying to really push that hard internally, but it wasn't quite in the books. This guy, Josh Topolsky, he was you know, formerly of The Verge and, and Box Media. He started his own company called TheOutline.com and I had met him through Bloomberg and they were looking for an Elixir developer. And so I joined as the first developer reporting to the CTO. And so we built an online magazine, so a really visually engaging news media experience. So we built a content management system and the front end for that website, all in Elixir from the ground up. And it is a really, really beautiful website. I was going to save these questions for, toward the end, but I think it's okay if we talk about the outline now. Can you tell us a little bit about like, how the outline was running Elixir and what the architecture looked like? Absolutely. Most websites today or at least a lot of the engaging user experience typed websites uh, use single page app frameworks. React gets thrown around a lot. People love Vue. Maybe people are still using vanilla JavaScript in some cases for single page app experiences. Uh, what we try to do is we try to leverage Phoenix's server side rendering capabilities, which I think get less love in the community than they should. It's really easy to spin up a server rendered website and then add JavaScript on top of it to give it more of those you know dynamic features that make it you know more interesting to engage with. So on mobile, the the outline, you can swipe through articles like you would on like Snapchat, you mm. know, swiping left and right, and it feels very nice. That's JavaScript that is on top of a server rendered page. You know, we're able to render pages in microseconds in some cases and we are serving millions of users a month with no CDN caches of pages. Every single user was hitting the server, and we were doing that with only two Heroku dinos, with really not a lot of effort put into like you know making it performant. Just out of the box, Elixir did that really, really well. Eric, can you give any context around how amazing that is? So I guess mostly coming from a Ruby experience. If you were to try and get away with that with two dynos, you'd probably have the performance L's and then like just fill up <laughs> those dynos with as many like Puma workers as you could. So it's just pretty incredible to hear. We've heard another company on this podcast, I think last season, Kava has a, had a single dyno and was like serving all of their restaurants. And it's just, it's always amazing to hear like Elixir on Heroku and like, the memory just sits at a flat like 100 megs <laughs> and it's just like barely doing anything even though you're serving a lot of requests. So that's it's pretty great. Yeah, and actually something to add. So we added a feature you know, somewhere down the road where we actually spun up a process per user who went on the site and then as they navigated around the site, we were like 
basically an event log of like how they were interacting, which posts they were seeing so that we could do things like, you know, make sure if they seen posts one that they didn't see it again when they came back. And so when we first launched that feature, I was really afraid that it was going to like, you know, be this giant memory leak and go through the roof. And it just the incline was definitely there, but it really didn't matter. Um, and we just we leveraged the fact that every day the Heroku dynos turn over. And so that would be like our memory reset. And then users would come back and restart their process. And, you know, what was really cool about that is like you get kind of the best of both worlds where you're holding application state in memory, but you don't really have to worry about losing it. It's not that important of information. We call it the semi-stateful application. All right. So let's switch over to some open source stuff. So looking at your GitHub profile, you've been pretty active in a, just a smattering of Elixir projects. Um, so you want to tell us how you got involved with that? Yeah, absolutely. My contributions have definitely been small, although I wish that I you know had time to do more. I got interested in open source through a project called Hackity Hack when I was back in college. So probably around like 2009, 2010, this guy, Steve Klabnik, who's actually really big in the Rust community now, he had this Ruby project that was intended for teaching other people Ruby. Um, And I actually never ended up contributing to it, but it became like a fascination of mine to like be a part of those communities who, you know, focus on projects like this. And so I always had that desire to be part of the open source community just because I found it so great, you know, the way that people can collaborate and build really interesting software. I think actually it started out when I was in Bloomberg, I started contributing to a few Node.js projects, libxml.js or something like that being one of them. But you know, as I've joined the Elixir community, the community is so great, and I you know follow GitHub issues all the time and see where I can you know add my contribution. And um, I've helped out with some documentation efforts and small bug fixing in Elixir itself. You know, I was interested in helping out with the Elixir Slack project, Floki, which is an XML project that we use very heavily at the Outline. I added some features to that, and then most recently, Rustler. I added some features that made error handling a lot better, a lot better error messages so that when you're transferring state in between Elixir and Rust, you can really know what's going wrong when you hit a certain edge case. What is your process for finding issues and resolving them? Are there any tips you would give for someone looking to get involved? Yeah, I think the best way to start is just, you know, if there is a project that you really like and you're really excited about it, just start following it on GitHub and then, you know, every day or once a week or whatever works for you, just follow the issues that are coming into the project, follow the pull requests, like get a pulse on what's happening and then look for gaps in documentation. That's always, I think, the best place to start is find uh, places where you can make the project more clear for everyone. Elixir has, I think, world-class documentation, not in just in terms of like the quality of what's out there, but also the XDoc, the system for delivering documentation is, is quite excellent. So start there if you're intimidated, but look for opportunities where, you know, there's something where you'd like in that project that you don't see something that you think should be there and, you know, try and add it. I want to double down on this advice that you're giving because first of all, I think this is a common question that beginning programmers, beginner programmers have is like, how do I get involved with open source? 
And I think that they should go look at your GitHub profile because you've contributed to Elixir, you contributed to Phoenix, you contributed to Rustler. So you contributed to these major, major ecosystem components. And they're not like massive PRs that you were submitting, but they help move the project forward. And you know, you're a VP of engineering at a pretty successful startup here. So it's indicative of the approach that someone should or can take and be successful in open source. Eric, do you have any more open source questions before we move to the specifics? Yeah. So we like asking everyone if your employers have helped with your contributions to open source. So did the outline or simple or your current employer, uh, simple bet help with contributing to open source? Uh, to some extent, yes. And I think, you know, here at SimpleBet, I want to do more. You know, part of it is like having stability in the product that you're building so that you can, you know, justify giving back and making time for, for open source. With that being said, a lot of times the justification for working on open source could be, hey, we use this open source project at work and we need this feature. And that's actually what happened with Rustler where we were running into issues where we were trying to get better introspection into what was happening when we had an error happen. And so I just added features to you know, make error messages a lot more verbose and explicit. Ivar Vong, who's my boss at The Outline and a good friend, you know, he encouraged me to you know, make time and when appropriate, you know, work on open source. But, you know, here at SimpleBet, I want to take that a step further. And, you know, as we, you know, have a bit more stability in our product, I really want to make actually explicit time where people can work on side projects and open source and give back to the community. Because I think, you know, that doesn't just benefit the community, but it also raises your profile externally, you know, giving those contributions, you get to see other people get to see that SimpleBed or the outline or smart logic is giving back to open source that they're doing interesting things. And then it's also a really good recruiting tool in some ways, you know, people see those contributions and are like, oh, maybe that's a good place to work. So my next question here was how you got started with contributing to Rustler. It sounds like, is that what you were just describing with the air handling? Yes. Maybe to just dive into it a little bit more. Do, yeah. So we work really extensively with Elixir and Rust and there's this is concept called native implemented function in the Beam VM, which is a way to connect C native code and use it to execute in the Beam VM. So the Beam VM is really good at concurrency. It's really good at fault tolerance and high availability, but it's not known for number crunching, for you know executing instructions at a very high speed. And so when you need that, you can leverage this uh, this NIF interface, native implemented functions, and write C code that you can leverage existing libraries or write your own code to get really high performance. Now, Rustler is a library that allows you to do that, but with Rust code and have all of the safety guarantees of Rust. So for those who don't know too much about Rust, Rust is a systems level programming language. It's designed as a, sort of an, a successor to more of a C++ than a C, but definitely both. And one of the main goals of the language is to make it so that you can't shoot yourself in the foot. The language is safe as long as you write safe code. Unsafe code, on the other hand, is code that you explicitly mark, you wrap it in an unsafe block, and it, you get you know some of the compiler restrictions get turned off for you. You can do certain types of uh, pointer arithmetic and stuff that can lead to those fatal null pointer exceptions, seg fault, if you will. And so with Rust, you really 
have a really big safety net for that. And that's why there's a really good candidate to write these NIFs in. The other flip side is that NIFs, if they're running too long, can interact with the scheduler in a negative way. So you have to be careful about that. Mm-hmm. So you just described what NIFs are, but what are you using NIFs for at SimpleBet? And you're writing these in Rust and they're compiling down to C, right? Or Yeah, so they don't compile down the C. They compile down directly into machine code. Okay. So they get compiled into assembly and get compiled into a binary executable, or actually a shared object that gets linked into the BeamVM. So what do we use it for at SimpleBet? So we're building this pricing engine, right? Let's say you have a market like the money line. Is team A going to win? Is team B going to win? Or is it going to be a tie? And so we want to assign probabilities to each of those selections. And so as we're coordinating that state on our Elixir code, and we're you know, keeping track of real-time incidents that are coming through from our feeds, uh, we then take the state of the game and we want to run them through our models. As I mentioned, Elixir is not so great at the number crunching, and that's what these machine learning models that we write are all about is doing a bunch of math really, really quickly. And so we call an Elixir function, which is actually Rust behind the scenes, and it could turn over those pricing in microseconds or single-digit milliseconds. Mm. And so we're re-implementing our models in Rust, and that allows for really high turnover time. So can you talk a little bit about like the challenges? I mean, you have the best perspective on this of almost anyone I know, but you're running so many languages in your back end. Like, can you talk a little bit about the challenges of doing that? Uh, the challenges of having multiple languages in your having backend? Rust and Elixir, mm-hmm. and you've got a, you know, Python going on, so and probably maybe things I don't know about. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we uh, we use Secret Language X as well. <laughs> um, what is that? <laughs> what am I left at? <laughs> yeah, so we're using a little bit of JavaScript too, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head with Python, Elixir, Rust. All these languages have different strong suits. I mean, Python's really good at interfacing with all these scientific and mathematical libraries. NumPy, Scikit-Learn. Basically, every data scientist toolkit is usually uh, Python, or if you're really nerdy, you're using like Rust, or sorry, R or Julia or something like that. For the most part, our data science team uses Python, and it's really good at doing research and you know running multiple models and backtesting and all the things that our data science team does. And then our Elixir and Rust team, they're working on building that production system that then takes those models and makes them go fast, turns it into a real product. But I think the challenge within all of that is that these are all of the very different skill sets, right? And finding a way for the people who have these different skill sets to interact is really important to get everyone in the room and to be speaking the same language is really important. So one of the things that I did early on in SimpleBet was for our machine learning models, you know, I was just you know, trying to get up to speed with, you know, I'm not a data scientist and I didn't fully understand the work that they were doing. And so I you know, established a common vernacular that we use to describe, you know, this type of work in these machine learning pipelines. We now have very explicit language that, you know, both the engineers and the data scientists understand so that we can speak the same language and, you know, have objective conversations. But going more specifically into the languages itself, We're doing a little bit of like cross-pollination where some people who maybe know Python are learning Rust, the people who know Rust because we're, you know, exposing that in Elixir, they're learning some Elixir. Uh, Some of our front-end engineers who are writing React, we're teaching them 
you know, they knew JavaScript for teaching them Elixir. And so that cross-pollination is, I think, really important because it gets people, one, exposed to new ideas and uh, maybe informs, you know, if I learn something about Elixir and functional programming, maybe I'll write better JavaScript. Right. So I think that's really important. And I don't know if I answered your question, but happy to dive into that a bit well, more. Well, I also kind of want to circle back a little bit to Rustler. Because so, so Rustler is it's a, it's a Rust to Elixir bridge, is that right? So it's sort that's of providing right. uh, the framework for these natively implemented functions to run in Elixir. Now you contributed to Rustler. Can you talk a little bit about like what Rustler is doing on a technical level? Absolutely. So Rustler is divided into a number of different crates. Crates is just the word that they like to use in the Rust community for a library. Mm -hmm. So of the crates off the top of my head, there's the Rustler core, which is like when I'm writing my Rust code, that's the package I import to define my interface, define the functions that I want to export as Elixir functions, right? So typically when you're writing a Rust NIF, there's some, you know, boilerplate code that you use to define, hey, you know, I have this function with this many arguments and I want to expose it. And so you expose those functions, you write those functions and, you know, delegate to whatever code you want to write. And that's using the main Rustler package, which is purely a Rust package. But then there's Rustler code gen, which you don't typically interact with directly outside of some decorator macros. So for example, let's say I have an Elixir struct, right? My struct's name is SmartLogic. <laughs> and I want to expose that. It's got, like, it's got a few fields on it. And so I want to expose that in Elixir, that struct. But I want to be able to send that through to Rust code. And so what you do is you write a struct in Rust that has matching field names. And then you annotate it and you say, module, this is an Elixir struct and module is, and then you name out the full Elixir module. So Elixir.SmartLogic. And I'm actually pretty sure you can uh, omit the Elixir dot as well. And then so what will happen is Rustler code gen will then generate the code for doing the serialization, deserialization between Elixir and Rust. So all you have to do is call some term dot serialize and you specify in the left hand of the operation the struct that you want to deserialize it into and then that generated code will make sure that you've uh, have all the right fields and that the types that you annotated for each field are correct actually this is the part that i contributed to so it used to be that if you had you know a struct in Elixir, right? And let's say you had two fields. One was called num and the other was called string. And respectively, they're supposed to be a number and a string. And if you passed in a string for the number field and vice versa, Rust would just return an error. NIF error, (laughs) which is obviously not very useful. Right. Uh, And so my contribution was actually to print out the struct and the field that was incorrect and give you a pretty decent explanation as to what was going wrong. Now, going back more into like what is a part of Rustler, so there's the main package, Rustler, there's Rustler code gen, which generates like the binding interface. Then there's Rustler mix, which is the Elixir compiler, which knows that you're uh, you know, in a, a NIF and it delegates out to the Rustup binary which will actually compile your Rust code and put it in the right place for the Elixir VM. I think that is mostly everything. There's actually another interesting package that I think was created off of a issue I added to Rustler, which is Rustler Surday or Surd, which is a serialization deserialization library that makes it even easier to do the thing I was just talking about. I just want to point out, because I looked up the, the GitHub repo for Rustler while you were talking about this, 
And because I can just imagine this error situation that you were describing being so frustrating. I wanted to know how many people you were like potentially helping by solving that problem. And there's like 1500 stars. So I'm sure a lot of developers are very grateful to you <laughs> for implementing that air handling code. That'd be cool. They should reach out to Dave Lucia and let him know how grateful they are. <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful for, I actually don't know the names. I think it's like Hanshi. Man, there's two people who are like the biggest contributors to Rustler. And it's a big thank you to them actually for the ingenuity they had to even start that project. And there's a lot of really interesting work that has gone into that project. So, I mean, I'm very proud of my little contribution, but I mean, all of the big thanks goes to that crew who have, you know, built that package and have maintained it over the last few years and built a really high quality piece of software that so many people use. Well, we were going to talk a little bit about comparing Rust to Elixir. You know, maybe we can go there just a little bit. Can you talk about maybe some of the salient differences? They seem like very different languages to me, but I'm no expert in Rust, so I'd love to hear your perspective on it. So I was actually asked to write a blog post on this. Did you? No, I've been so busy. (laughs) Before we started this podcast, we were all lamenting how our marketing people want us to write blog posts, and we just push them off, (laughs) and they love us for it, of course. So I've written uh, only three blog posts. Two of them were pretty decently successful, but I've been wanting to write about, you know, people have written a decent amount about Elixir and Rust and, you know, how, you know, you can combine them, but I actually wanted to talk about like how they're a perfect pair, but also how they are conceptually similar at the surface level and how that makes learning, you know, one way versus the other at least syntactically, a familiar experience. Mm. So, you know, Rust and Elixir, both languages, were really inspired by many languages that came before. I think if you ask anyone who contributed to Rust and was involved, you know, with any of the design of Rust, they would tell you handfuls of languages where they really just, you know, took ideas and made it part of Rust. And I think the same goes for Elixir. So the blog post I wanted to write was just, you know, describing how I think it was the dream stack is what I wanted to call it. But it's like, you know, for our use case of really wanting the concurrency of Elixir and the number crutching of Rust, you know, having both and combining them together has been such a wonderful experience. And using Rustler as a library makes that really, really easy. And then I wanted to talk about, you know, at a surface level, things like pattern matching is very, very similar. You know, there's a case statement in Elixir, there's a match statement in Rust and they work almost identically. There's actually some extra features that you get in Rust because of the type system that make it even more interesting in some cases. And the other way around, because Elixir isn't typed, you can do some other types of more powerful matching that is just maybe a little bit less restrictive than what you would have to do in Rust. And so, you know, there's a lot of functional concepts and, you know, surface level things like pattern matching that you have in both languages that if you jump from one to the other, you're like, oh, it's quite familiar. That's nice. Yeah. And what would you say would be a good spot to start learning Rust if you're interested in making your functions way faster? Well, first of all, I want to just point out a package to watch out for, which is the creator of Rustler. Oh my God. <laughs> Eric is showcasing something, which I'm going to say in a moment, but there's this really interesting package out there that's being started by the creator of Rustler. All you do is you just annotate your Elixir function and you say, I want this to go fast. And then it actually generates a NIF for you based on the Elixir code you write. 
Um, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. And Wait, maybe, a functionally equivalent NIF, like, or is it just like a like yes. placeholder NIF? No way. That's yes. really cool. Niffy. Yes, Niffy. I think it's pretty experimental right now, but it's quite interesting and quite aspirational. And I'm really yeah, curious where that goes. That's amazing. So keep an eye on that. I don't want to blow up their spot if they're trying to keep that package quiet, but it's, I've been following a little bit and it's quite interesting. The best way to learn Rust and the way I learn Rust is the Rust programming language by my hackity hack friend, uh, Steve Klabnik. So that book, I read it front to back and I bought the hardcover just like Eric did, but I actually read the entire book online. Uh, the whole book is available for free online and I really encourage you to buy the hardcover if not just to keep it on your desk as a, you know, a little token, but to also support the authors. It's a really great book. I learned a lot from it. And there's so many community resources for diving into further topics. The Rust Playground is really great online tool for experimenting with Rust code and just testing things out. Um, and then there's some better resources that are popping up, like interactive learning experiences online of which I don't remember the names of any. So sorry for not being more prepared, but I'll see if I can get those over for show notes. We've deviated really far from our script today, which is sometimes that was my goal. the case. Well, you've succeeded. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask a question because it kind of occurred to me, like, is there anything that you've learned from doing data science, machine learning models in Rust? Is there anything that you've learned about sort of the process of coming up with the model in a theoretical sense and then coding it and then writing it in Rust. Is there anything you've learned there that people who are working with data scientists and data engineers to sort of make this whole thing work that would be helpful to them? Yes, you should come apply to SimpleBed <laughs> and find out what it's like firsthand. <laughs> and that's all I'll say. <laughs> Eric, do you have any other questions before I give him time to... Uh, shamelessly plug simple bet like you just did? Uh, um, I think I just want one more, I guess, statement. I just want to point out that Rust has a tool called Cargo, which is very similar to Mix in Elixir. And it's just as nice as Mix, but for Rust. So I just like, I've done a little bit of Rust and like kind of playing around with it and like finding out that they have a really great build tool and like package tool kind of built all in one really helps doing compiled code that's like C and C++, then like no one knows how to figure out make files and like autoconf and all that fun stuff. So it's a lot easier to just give Rust a shot. So yeah, that's it. Great. Yeah, Rust seems very intimidating, just to add to that slightly. It's intimidating for a lot of people and the learning curve is high, but there's a lot of really great resources out there and the compiler is so friendly. It basically tells you exactly what you've done wrong and points to additional information. So, you know, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty and try it out. And it has that really cool thing where it points at exactly the spot that's wrong <laughs> with like a little ASCII art. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I actually think that was taken from Elm, the Elm compiler, which is another really great piece of software. Oh my gosh, if you name drop Elm, the people listening to this podcast will be so happy. Oh man, I've written a decent amount of Elm. I built a tic-tac-toe game in Elm when I was interviewing a few years ago. And that was really fun. Elm is a nice little language, although... I'm not so sure about its, you know, production level viability. Maybe other people can speak to that. I think that's what everybody, I mean, it's so popular in the Elixir community, but I think that everybody sort of feels the same way about that particular hesitation. So Dave Lucia, do you have any final plugs, asks for the audience, directions of social media, where to find info in your library, your company, et cetera? 
Yeah. So again, I work for SimpleBet. Our website is simplebet.io. There's not a ton of information about us right now as we're gearing up to get our product into the market. But we're hiring Elixir developers, Rust developers, data engineers in Python, um, and some DevOps people. So if you want to be a part of a really interesting company that's trying to do some really cool and interesting things in the sports betting space, there will be a link to our Elixir job description in the show notes, and you could find the rest of our job descriptions through then, through there. You can find me at DavyDog187 on Twitter. That's my fifth grade handle and I will never get rid of it. Or Dave at simplebet.io if you want to shoot me an email. Great. Eric, any final words? He's shaking his head no. Dave Lucia, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, this has been Smart Software with Smart Logic talking about Elixir internals. Join us next time for more sweet, sweet alchemy. Thanks for having me, guys. 